coming and, and speaking with us this Thanks morning, Adam. Me. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Um, yeah, look, it, it's such a privilege to be able to come to to preach in churches. I, I always say to the campus directors, if I'm on one of our campuses, you know, just, just try to get me into a church if you can. And, uh, I mean, I love the teaching side, don't get me wrong, but I actually think I like the preaching side a bit more. I like being in the church. Uh, don't tell my boss that, but um, I think because this is where it's at. You know, teaching a class is great, but it's for the purposes of ministry. It's to train up ministers to go out and do the work of, uh, of the gospel. So to be here, where it's at, you know, to see what you guys are doing here as a church. It's interesting, actually. I feel like I'm really at home. Um, my own church back in Sydney, uh, our main missionary priority is Cambodia. Um, we've got a young couple that are back in Cambodia now, but she's Cambodian herself. And uh, so they've gone over to start ministry. We've just planted a church over there and have a really deep heart for Cambodia, but also for chaplaincy, actually chaplaincy in high schools. So I kind of felt like I'm, where am I? A, I feel like I'm back in my own church. So this has been really great. I've, I've just really enjoyed um, what we're doing here this morning. I hope you do have your Bibles or your Bible apps or whatever it is that you you read. Um, if you come with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 16. And we're just going to read a whole lot of Bible, if that's all right. That's good. That's better. <clears throat> I'm, glad I'm, I'm glad I'm amongst friends here. I don't have a lot of points. I don't really have a lot of anything else other than a lot of texts. So um, we're going to stay around 2 Corinthians for this morning. But I want to ask, well, preface what I'm saying by asking, a, a, putting a question to you, a challenge to you. It's a hypothetical. You don't have to yell out the answer. Um, but if you had to write your ministry CV, what would you put on it? So I want to say to you, list for me what it is that you think makes you a Christian, or particularly a Christian minister? What are the things that you've achieved, what have you accomplished, sermons you've preached, or churches planted, or Bible studies led, or whatever it is that you might have done? If you had to list all of those things, if you, or what, what you think would actually qualify you to be able to say that I'm a minister of the gospel, what would you put on there? It's hypothetical, you don't have to deal out the answers, it's okay, but just have a bit of a think about what that might look like. Because this is precisely the question that they've asked Paul. Uh, what's happened by the, by the time of 2 Corinthians being written is that there's been a massive falling out between Paul and the church. Uh, it's a whole other story. Come back. I'm doing my class on Corinthians this week. If you want to hear the full details, you're more than welcome to, to join us for that. But there's been a, bit, a major falling out to the point where some in the Corinthian church have actually replaced Paul with other apostles. Uh, it's gone from Paul is our pastor to Paul is trying to steal from us. And as a result, they've effectively ex excommunicated Paul and they've replaced him with, with men who actually have called themselves, styled themselves as quote-unquote super apostles. In the Greek, hyper apostles. So you can picture these guys with sort of their underwear outside their togas who are these great, fantastic, as far as they're concerned, I mean, you know, I'm really good. You want to know more, ask me. I'll tell you how good I am. That sort of a person. And so they've brought these people in, and these guys have got CVs that would just blow your mind. Just incredible story after story of things they've done, or so they claim anyway. These great achievements, so much so that they can actually call themselves super apostles. So the Corinthians have basically said to Paul, look, all right, there's been some reconciliation that's been made, but we've got super apostles, Paul. 
I mean, super, they're like literally super apostles. What have you got? I mean, if you're going to come back here, if you're going to be our pastor again, what is it about you that makes you even more super than these guys, a super duper apostle? Like, how, how could you be better than a super apostle? What is it that you've got going for you? Now, Paul doesn't want a bar of this. Let's just be clear. And he makes that very clear himself in this text. He doesn't want a bar of this. This is just rubbish as far as he's concerned. But he realizes that the only way he's going to win this small sector of the church back to himself is to, play, to enter into this game, to play this game. It's the only way he's going to win them over. And so unfortunately, Paul is put into this position where he has to prove himself again. He's been their pastor for a number of years now. They know what he's about. They know what he can do. They've seen what his ministry is all about. But he still has to prove himself. And so this is the game that he has to effectively enter into. Now, he's been putting this off and he's been putting this off until chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians because he just doesn't want to have to do this. But finally, it comes to the point where, where this has got to get done. Now, the thing you've got to remember when this letter is being heard by the Corinthians, it's been read out. When you write letters in the ancient world, you don't write it so that people can pass it around and read it to themselves because only 10% of the people can actually read. So this would have been a sermon that would have been delivered to the Corinthian congregation. Everybody would have been in the room. This small group of Corinthians would have been there with their new super apostles, listening in on what Paul has to say to them in response to their question of what makes you a great minister? Paul, what makes you an apostle of Christ? As so finally they get to this critical moment, we pick it up in chapter 11 and verse 16. Paul says, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Now, it's always interesting when Paul prefaces something by saying, this is not the word of the Lord. This is just us talking now. Holy Spirit has just left the room. He's off having a coffee somewhere. Even he doesn't want a bar of this. This is just fools talking to other fools. But apparently, the only way that I can get through to you guys is to be a fool, because I guess takes one to no one, perhaps. If that's what it takes, then I guess that's the game I have to play. Since many are boasting in the way the world does and talking about these super apostles, these people that are sitting in the room, I'm sort of pointing to that corner. I'm not saying that they're the, these super apostles up here, or that these are the bad guys. Just I need someone to point. It's just an illustration. So they're in the room. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, O2 will boast. I mean, he's already laying the groundwork here, isn't he? This isn't godly boasting. This is just worldly stuff that's happening here, but I guess this is the game. You gladly put up with fools <laughs> since you were so wise. In fact, you even put up with any who enslave you or exploit you or take advantage of you or push themselves forward and slap you in the face. To my shame, I admit we were too weak for that. Um, <clears throat> Paul had a sarcasm switch that often he would switch on, and this is in full on. It's this dialed right up sarcasm that Paul's doing here. What used to happen would be that if you're a traveling teacher, the expectation was that when you came into a city, people would give you some support. They would bring you into the house, they'd look after you, they'd take care of you. This is why when Jesus sends out the 12, he sends them out two by two and he says to them, when you come into a place, find a house that's worthy and stay with them until the time when you leave. That's just the standard practice. 
Now, Paul didn't do that when he got to Corinth. And the reason for that is that if you've got someone staying in your house, there's this element to which you own them. You get to call the shots. Because, hey, I'm giving you board, I'm giving you food, I'm even paying you. And so, therefore, I own you. So Paul came to Corinth and he said, I'm not going to have a bar of that because I don't want anyone here thinking they own me. I'm here to preach Christ to everybody, not just to a select few. But conversely, what could happen would be that somebody could come into a house and just abuse that person's patronage. They could come in claiming to be something great, but really what they are is just their users. What they used to call them was parasites. People that come in and just suck dry all the resources. Paul says, these guys aren't your clients. They're not people that are here to bless you. They're parasites. They've come in, and they're just here to suck you dry. They're not the real thing. And he says, now, apparently that's what you wanted. Apparently you wanted somebody to come in and abuse you and slap you and treat you poorly and take all your resources. Apparently that's what you want, because that's the mark of a minister. Uh, I'm sorry, we came in and served you. We came in and blessed you and took nothing from you. I'm so sorry. Apparently that's not good enough to be a minister of Christ, to serve. I guess we were too weak. Please let me extend my apologies for, for being such a weak apostle. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, let's be clear, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they, are they full-blooded Jewish? Are they ethnically Jewish ministers? Absolutely so am I. I got the circumcision to prove it. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. Are they Christians? I'm a better one. And now just imagine, all right, just, just imagine for a moment that I got up here this morning, you don't know anything about me, I get up and I say, it is such a privilege for you to have me here because I am such an anointed minister, so much more than all of you put together, that just the blessing of me being here just boosts the profile of this church. Could you, could you imagine that, right? That'd last about five minutes. In fact, honestly, if you sat there and listened to anything else I have to say, you pretty much deserve whatever's coming. This is Paul who would say at one point, I'm the chief of all sinners. Now turning around and saying, actually, I'm an even better minister, even greater Christian than these men. Seems a bit arrogant, Paul. Well, put some context to it. Not a few verses ago, he actually refers to these men, these super apostles, as they call themselves, as servants of Satan. They're actually not ministers at all. They're servants of Satan. Now, the last time I checked, you can't be a servant of Satan and a minister of the gospel at the same time. Is that, I don't know, do you do things differently in Queensland or is it the same up here as in Sydney? Okay, right. So these men are servants of Satan, as far as Paul's concerned. Well, even to be a half-hearted Christian is still a better Christian than a servant of Satan. I mean, you've just got to be a Christian to be a better Christian than the non-Christian, right? So it's kind of a logical thing Paul's saying here. He's not boasting, he's just pointing out the bleeding obvious by making this case. He says, all right, these super apostles, as you call them, I'm a greater minister than these guys. Now the Corinthians are listening, because they wouldn't have heard that connection. They would have gone, ah, finally, Paul's talking the way we want him to talk. 
Paul's starting to boast a bit. Paul's starting to really tell us what an amazing guy is. Here it comes. Here comes the good stuff. This is what we came here for. And he says, all right, look, I've put this off for long enough. You want to know what makes me a great minister? When I look back over the course of my ministry and, and, I, look at, and I tally up the things that would, I would consider to make me a great minister, you want to know what those things are? He says, all right, I'll tell you. He says, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, <laughs> been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. And they're like, that's not what we were expecting, Bolt. <laughs> we wanted to hear about the miracles. We wanted to hear about all these great things that you've achieved, and, and, and this is all you got? And he said, oh, oh, yeah, I'm talking about a different Jesus here. Yeah, I'm talking about the Jesus who suffered and died on the cross. And so if, if I'm going to be somebody who walks in his footsteps and ministers in his likeness, then wouldn't that suggest that it's not about being rich and famous and all these great things? Isn't it more about experiencing the same things that Christ did? I mean, if I look at my life, it seems to line up with what struggles Jesus went through. And if that's what he considers to be ministry, then by my doing that sort of ministry would seem to suggest that I'm going through the same thing as Jesus did. If being a Christian is to be Christ-like, then that would seem to make me more Christ-like, wouldn't it? And I, oh, I guess so, but, but, but I just like, I've enjoyed myself now. This is, this is good, actually. I, I, let me unpack this. No, Paul, you don't have to. No, 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 you started this. Let me unpack this in a bit more detail. It says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. I need to do a quick survey here. Every time I talk this message, I'll, I'll just do a quick survey just to find out if this is still getting around. How many of you have you heard it said or taught, or maybe you've said this yourself, that the reason they flogged 40 lashes minus the one is that if you flog a person 40 times, it actually kills them? Anyone heard that? A couple of you have? Okay, all right, so it's still getting around. My seven-year-old would kind of figure out that's a bit of a silly thing to suggest. Here's the thing. If you were to put up here a big Samoan rugby player and flog that guy 40 times, you'd probably walk out and go, oh, that was a good back rub. Thanks for that. Back next week for the same one. You flog me 40 times, I'm probably dead by about four. That's got nothing to do with our physiology. Surely that would suggest something. In Deuteronomy, it says that if you're going to punish somebody, flog them 40 times, but not, um, not a lash more, because that would actually shame them and shame you. You would, in fact, become a lawbreaker. Now, Jews not wanting to be lawbreakers would say, all right, just to be sure, we'll only flog you 39 times. Because we, in punishing you for breaking the law, don't want ourselves to become lawbreakers as well. So we'll only flog you 39 times. So even in punishment, there's some legalism. Well, that continued right through into the first century. Only now this had become a synagogue punishment. So you're part of, a, you're part of the Jewish community. You're part of the local synagogue. That's where you come to meet and, and be part of that community. Within that community, they would have the responsibility of bringing discipline to any member of the Jewish community who is violating the law, violating Torah. The worst violation, of course, is blasphemy. And the punishment for that was actually a choice. We can either flog you 40 times, minus the one, or we can excommunicate you from the synagogue. It's your choice. 
Now, when they flogged you, what they used to use was this, uh, this sort of wide leather strap that would be doubled over twice, so it's effect effectively two lashes, and they would use that to, to hit you. And what, what they would do, the Jews would do, is to say, okay, they'd measure up the size of the person and they determine the, the, a person whose physical size, whether they're a small person or a larger person, what sort of beating they could actually sustain. So if you're a smaller person, they might only hit you 10 times. Because we want to punish you, but we don't want to kill you. We, don't, we, we want to be merciful even in our punishment of you. But if you're a bigger person, then they give you the full 40, or the full 40 minus one, which would suggest to us that Paul's actually a large guy because they've determined that he's big enough to handle this, the full 40 lashes. So on five different occasions, this is the choice that's been given to Paul. You can either be flogged or we can excommunicate you. And on five different occasions, Paul's chosen to be flogged. Why? Well, because if you're excommunicated, you can't come back next Saturday and keep preaching Jesus. Or the Saturday after, because it's going to take some time to heal up. And that's another point. 40 lashes, let's say this says the 40, five times is 200 lashes with a double, so there's 400 actual lash marks. What does that do to your back? I mean, surely by the fifth time, they're just hitting scar tissue. What's that going to do when you wake up in the morning and you just, you've got to just stretch your skin out again just to get movement? I would assume. I've never, I've never been flogged, all right? I've been hit with a tea towel and that's bad enough, much less being flogged with an actual whip. Five different times that happened. Then he goes on, he says, three times I was beaten with rods. That's the Roman punishment. What used to happen with the governor of every city, and we read about this, in fact, in Acts 16 when Paul's in Philippi, he was very severely flogged it actually says. The governor of every Roman province would be accompanied by a lictor, who was basically the disciplinarian. And they would carry with them a fasces, uh, F-A-S-C-E-S, which is where we get our word fascism from, which basically just means authoritarian rule. And the fasces was just a bundle of rods. And the idea of that, it was a symbol of authority, it was a symbol of discipline. You muck up, we're going to punish you on the spot. Romans didn't have jail sentences. They didn't put you in jail for 20 years or something like that. Jail was just there to hold you till you're going to go to court. But what the idea was, is they just flog you whatever, whatever the, on the spot and just have it done then and there. Now, they didn't have any qualms about that. They just hit you till the arm was tired. On three different occasions, Paul says, I was hit with these rods on top of already pretty severe scar tissue. It's got to mess you up. He says, once I was stoned. And he's not talking about some rebellious time he had back in the 60s where he was just exploring himself. It was actually, they threw rocks at him to try to kill him. We read about this in Acts 14. They stoned him, and then they left him for dead. You know why they left him for dead? Because he was dead. Because he was actually dead. You don't go through that and not live. That's the idea. So what they do when they stone you would be that they would take you up into a high platform, not a, like a cliff, but like a high enough platform, maybe a two-story building, and they would throw you off. And the idea was that that would be enough to kill you. If it didn't, the next step would be they would get a large boulder and they'd drop it on your chest. And if that didn't work, then they'd just pelt you with stones. 
Remember Luke when Jesus is preaching in the, in the synagogue and they drag him up to a high point to throw him off. It wasn't like some massive lookout. It was only the, the area that they were in was, was a very flat area. It was just a high enough point to throw him off to start this process of stoning him. So they do that at the pool and uh, well they kill him. It's interesting because then the believers get around and pray for him and he revives. Now, at that moment, if I was Paul, I'd probably be a bit ticked off, actually. I mean, I've just been stoned to death, and now, finally, it's done. No more floggings, no more of this rubbish that I have to go through. There's the Lord right there. I'm about to enter into glory, and I'm suddenly being pulled back by some idiot praying for me. Will you stop praying? And they're like, Paul, you're awake, you're alive. Yeah, thanks, you so-and-so. But what is, what's that going to do to your rib cage? What is having rocks pelted at your head going to do to your head? I mean, if there wasn't a bit of brain damage, I'd be very surprised. So there's that. Three times he says, I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. Three times I reenacted the final scene of Titanic. <laughs> Out there in the Mediterranean, floating around a piece of wood. Now, once is bad enough. Twice is a joke. Three times, you're like, Jesus, are you kidding me? Seriously, have you got nothing else? Like, three times? Like, any other original ideas? Nah, we're getting pretty bored up here. Just, that's all we've got left, you know, just, just shipwrecks. Now, here's the thing. If you were to put Paul in the 21st century Western church, and even one of those things was to happen, I mean, think about this. You go out in the mission field somewhere and you got flogged for the faith. No kidding. You would be, before you even get out of hospital, you would already have the book contract. You would already be, have all the preaching circuit lined up so that you could go around and tell about this horrific time when you were flogged in the name of Jesus. I mean, honestly, that's kind of where we are. For Paul, he gets flogged. He's like, oh, it's Tuesday again. I didn't realize the week had gone so quickly. I mean, this is just a day in the life. Three times I was shipwrecked, spent a night and a day in the open sea. He says, I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own people, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger from the city, in danger from the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false waves. <gasps> we like to think, or, or it seems to be implied to us, that the mark of really top-notch ministry is you get to travel around all these places to preach. And you hear this when preachers will get up and they'll tell you about wherever it is they just came from, all these great places that they visited. And we kind of think, man, that's, that's the benchmark right there. You get to do all this travel. I was at a state conference a few years ago and the, the, the state executive got up and you know, just to open up the, the conference. And he gets up and he says, oh, I just wanted to let you know that I just came over from Perth. I'm like, okay, uh, are, you, are you jet lagged? I mean, is there. He's like, isn't that what I'm supposed to do? Am I supposed to tell you, you know, that I've just come in from some remote place and impress you? And like, ah, oh, I see what you did there. I see what you did there. Well, anyway, the next day, the keynote speaker for the conference, who wasn't there the previous night, got up. <laughs> he gets up and he says, oh, I just got in from Europe. Couldn't work out why everybody in the room just burst out laughing. He just, just had no idea whatsoever. It was a really, really funny moment. 
Paul says, man, I've been, to, I've been all over the place. I've, I've seen most of the Roman Empire, at least on the eastern half. Uh, but not because I necessarily wanted to, but because every time I get to a city, they chase me out of the city to the next city. Like, I'm constantly just being chased out of places. So I see a lot of the world, but kind of on the run. Hey, I can stop here for five minutes. Okay, now I can keep going because they're trying to kill me. Paul says, yeah, I traveled around a bit, but not in the way I'd like to think. He says, I've toiled and I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. If you watch enough TV ministries, we seem to think that the benchmark of ministry is a private jet, five-star hotels, nice suits, big crowds. That's the benchmark. That somehow success in ministry is having all the stuff, all the wealth, all the fame and fortune that goes along with that. And this is a real trap, particularly for young people. Young ministers easily, I know I did this for a long time, I thought that's what it's supposed to look like. All the success and all these great things. Here's an interesting stat. If every person on the planet was to have the average lifestyle of an Australian, take every Australian, the average lifestyle that we have, to give that to every single person on the planet, it would take the resources of seven planets. Just think about that for a minute. And we somehow think that the benchmark of ministry is having the 15-bedroom mansion with all the cars and the private jet. There is not enough resources on the planet to sustain that. So if God's going to set a benchmark, surely it's something that everybody can aspire to. Surely it's going to be something we can all actually attain to. And so maybe actually it has nothing to do with wealth and fame and fortune and all those things that we think makes us successful. Paul says, it's certainly not the case for me. He says, sometimes I just like to have a pillow to put my head on. Sometimes I'd like to not be sleeping out in the ocean. That'd be a nice thought. He says, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. He says, you know what, forget all that stuff. Forget all the beatings, the floggings, forget the cigar tissue, forget all the head damage, forget all that. He says, you know the thing that really kills me? The thing that really just, this is the thing that really weighs me down? It's my children. It's the churches. I mean, in a time before texts and emails and video conference and all these things that we have, if you wanted to communicate with your church that is on the next continent, it's going to be about a three or four month process just to get a letter to them. Now, you guys have been around church long enough to know that you know, whatever starts as an argument on Sunday morning is generally a church split by Sunday night, right? Things happen quickly. When something goes wrong, it goes wrong and it escalates. Paul knows there's things going wrong in his churches and there's nothing he can do about it. Nothing. He's just got to trust that God will intervene and do what God does. But in the meantime, for Paul, this is his stress. It's the love that he has for his people. It's the love that he has for his churches. That's the thing that really kills him. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If you've looked at enough artwork of Paul, 
particularly sort of the Byzantine type of artwork where Paul's got the halo and he's, he's almost floating. You know, we kind of have this, ima this image of the first Christians as these super saints that lived in this constant state of revival that never sullied themselves with the filth of the world, that these ideal sort of demigod... That's rubbish. It's absolute rubbish. How much temptation do you think a guy like Paul goes through on a daily basis? He's a human like all of us, with a calling just like anybody else. Yet, his calling was to be the minister to the Gentiles. Do you not think that Satan had a personal army chasing him every single day of the week? Do you not think that Satan himself, as Paul seems to indicate, actually took it upon himself to go after Paul personally? Paul says, do you think you've got temptations? I mean, Paul was married at one point. We know that. He had to be because he's a Pharisee. He's left his wife, or she's left him, or she's died. Somehow or other, he's single. But you're not telling me that he doesn't have the standard normal temptation that a man would have? Or just the temptation to pride? I mean, when raising the dead is kind of like as, common, as easy as eating breakfast, do you not maybe somehow think, I'm pretty good at this? Wouldn't that be just the slightest temptation just to say, hey, you know what, God, in amongst all the suffering, maybe can I have a, just a bit of the glory? When people come up and say, Paul, you're amazing, can I maybe just go, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so I can't even do that. So you, you think, you've got temptation. Satan himself is after me. So, yeah, you're welcome that he's not coming after you. I'll take that for the team. Having enough time. Ugh, cutting it a bit fine. Let's get down to chapter 12. He says, I must go on boasting. I like that. I'm, I'm into this now. I'm, I'm in the zone. And the Corinthians are like, dude, just, just stop. Stop. No, 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 no. You, you wanted this. This is this. I'm, I'm in the zone now. Right? I'm going to gotta go on boasting, man. This is good stuff. This is although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. Now, ooh, suddenly the attention perks up. Oh, now we get into the good stuff. All this suffering business. Oh, I will pretend that didn't happen. But this is the, yeah, Paul, let's tell us about the deep spiritual insights that you've, you've received. All right, let me tell you about this one story. He says, I know a man in Christ. Now, when he says, I know a man in Christ, he's talking about himself. It's just kind of the way to boast without boasting. Right, so, and remember, this isn't the Lord speaking here. He left the room. He's off doing his own thing with the Trinity. God's just, Paul's just down here with the Corinthians. He says, although there was nothing began, I will go into visions and revelations. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I'll boast about someone like that, but I'll not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Now, this has caught their attention. This is the stuff they came to hear. You mean to say, Paul, we know we're talking about you, let's just, Paul, let's just cut the rubbish. We know it's you we're talking about here. You mean to say that you were caught up into the third heaven, some sort of paradise, whatever that is, we don't know, whatever, but you, what happened? Yeah, I hung out with Jesus, had coffee with him, 
chatted a bit about, you know, the creation, whatever, whatever. I don't know. What do you do when you talk to Jesus personally and he's like, he's across the table from you? I, I don't know. And that's kind of the point. Because the Corinthians like, tell, tell us more. Nah, sorry. Nah, can't do it. Sworn to secrecy. No, Paul, please. Nah, what happened in heaven stays in heaven. Okay? Just, just, just chill. Stop asking. I can't talk about it. Oh, come on, Paul. He says, oh. nah, sorry. Sorry, I can't do it. But this is this. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool. Because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. He says, I could tell you story after story after story of things that happened to me just like that. Visions, revelations, prophecy. And you've read Acts. People used to bring handkerchiefs that would touch Paul. They'd take them back to the sick, and the sick would be healed. Raising the dead for Paul was about as straightforward as having breakfast. When he was doing his missionary work around Galatia, there was a guy who came up against him and was challenging him and saying all this stuff about him. This is the first thing that Paul does. Like one of Paul's first miracles was to just make this dude go blind. God has turned against you. You will be blind. And the guy went blind. And Paul's word. I mean, you want somebody with some power. I, I don't think I want to have a pastor who would just say, hey, you know what, you're going to be blind for the next three, and I go blind. I just kind of don't want someone with that sort of power. That's kind of scary. That was my, that's my daily experience. You think these super apostles have got things to talk about? I could outdo them every single day of the week. Yes, but I won't do that for a second. Because if you can't see in me and in the ministry that I had when I was with you enough to prove that I'm a minister of Christ, then we've got nothing else to say. If you can't see the heart in me for you, then no story in the world is going to change that. In fact, if I did tell you those stories, you'd probably put me up on a pedestal next to Christ, and that's not where I belong. So you know what? I won't tell you a single thing about it. Because that would just do the opposite of what I'm trying to achieve here. He says at one point to these Corinthians, he says, look at what's right in front of you. If anyone claims to be a Christian, let him acknowledge that we too are Christians. What he's saying by that is this. All right, Corinthians, you want proof that I'm, a, I'm an apostle? Tell me this. How did you become Christians in the first place? Uh, well, you led us to the Lord. That's very interesting. I led you to the Lord. Now, you're saying that I'm not a Christian. So if I'm not a Christian, what does that make your salvation? Mmm, interesting. Yeah, funny that. So either we're all in desperate need of an altar call right now, or perhaps I am a minister and a Christian, because you are as well. And if that's not proof enough, honestly, well, I'm not the one that needs to get saved. Let's just be clear. He says, because of these surpassingly great revelations, therefore in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power 
is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says, you want, you want my CV? Here it is. There's only two things on it. Just two. The abundance of my weakness and the abundance of his grace. Everything else is rubbish. Father, thank you for your grace. We remember that there is nothing in ourselves that you didn't first give us. Any gift, any talent, any ability we might have was your gift to us. It's your grace gift to us. And so how can we boast in what was never ours to begin with, in what we never earned and what we never achieved? Our lives, our ministries, everything we do is only ever for your glory. And the minute we forget that, that's when we run into trouble. And so for this moment, we just come back to you. We come back into your grace and recognize that all of our weaknesses, all of our failings, all of those things that we might look at and think that can't be right, even those things you can use, even those things you can turn to your glory. Sure, there's lots of good things. Sure, there's lots of great achievements by your power. Yet at the same time, there's lots of weakness. There's lots of failings. And yet even in those, particularly in those points, is where we find the deepest parts of your grace. And it's from that place that you can most deeply work. And so once more, we throw ourselves back into your grace. We say thank you that you have allowed us to be part of your kingdom and to have the even greater privilege of being able to serve in this same kingdom. In every single thing we do, let it only be for your glory. Amen. Amen. Can we just thank Adam for, for sharing? This was produced by Cornerstone Christian Resources. It is deemed copyright and may be used by For further information about Cornerstone Christian Resources, please visit the Cornerstone website at www.homecommunityworld.com.au. Cornerstone meets at 81 Meter Parade Alderney every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Please feel free to join us, and we hope you have been encouraged by this message. Thank you.